Today's reading comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the reading of the word. This is the read. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, church. So good to be with you all this morning. If you brought your Bible, you can turn there to 1 John if you're not there already. Uh, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be with you all. Did everyone have a good 4th of July? Yeah? Everyone still have all their fingers attached firmly? Okay, good. Good. All right, well, it's great to be with you all this morning. If you missed last week, you missed uh, a really great passage, and you missed Tyler Thompson's final sermon on staff with us, which was bittersweet. Bittersweet. Bitter because we're going to miss him. I learned a lot from him. And sweet because now I'm again the only Tyler on staff. So <laughs> regained that back. So <laughs> I was wondering, is it too soon to say that? But no, no, it's not. Uh, and Pastor Frank is finishing up his vacation this week. So lots to pray for. Pray for Tyler Thompson and his new calling, his new congregation, and pray for Frank as he's finishing up that he'd rest well and, and come back ready to go. Can we pray now before we open God's word? God, we thank you for the gift of your word. What a treasure it is. Lord, what, what a way that we can learn truth about ourselves, truth about you, God. And as we study that truth now, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you use these meager words of mine and, and speak in power and truth to your people through your word? Lord, would you change hearts this morning? God, would you expose sin in us? As uncomfortable as that is, we want that the Christians in the room want that, God, because we want to be more like you, Jesus. So, Lord, would you be glorified today, and would you humble us, sinners? God, be glorified in, in all of this, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you haven't been with us so far, we are in the book of 1 John. And if you're wondering where to find that quickly, just go all the way to the back of your Bible and start backwards and you'll run into it pretty quick, starting from Revelation. And speaking of Revelation, we're excited to be tackling that incredible book next, after 1 John. We're going to be doing 12 weeks in that as well. And then after Revelation, we're into Advent already, if you can believe that. So don't put your trees up yet. I don't know if you're a July tree person, but... Uh, I would recommend waiting until we're closer to Advent. All right, but um, we're halfway through 1 John. This is week 6 of 13 that we're doing in 1 John. And what an amazing little letter this is so far, right? The confidence that John is hoping to inspire in you, believers. The assurance for us 
This letter is amazing. Not bad for an almost 2,000-year-old letter. But that's the point of John's letter here, is to assure Christians of the certainty of your faith. And also in here to teach against those who thought and taught that Jesus wasn't really God and man in one. He wasn't really fully both. But you know what else? Something really important that John wants you to hear in this book, in this letter. He wants to promote joy in you. He wants to spark hope in you. To show you what the true marks are for a Christian. And in fact, John has this pattern of how he wants to encourage you. Earlier in the book, he gives three marks or identifiers of a true Christian. As he gets into them, we see that they are obedience, love, and confession of sin. Those are three specific things he gets to. And in John's way, if you were here when Pastor Trey taught a couple weeks ago, John has this way of writing in, in a spiraling outward pattern, and he cycles back into those three again. And in this passage today, it's the, the restating of the first one, obedience. So in our verses today, all the way through 3.10, John is speaking of obedience. He gets into love after that in 3.11. And then when we get to chapter 4, he's getting back into true confession. These are the marks of a true Christian. So John today in our passage is covering most of the ground, unpacking this idea of obedience. And he does it in a number of ways, which we'll talk about. So let's read with all that said, let's read 1 John 2, 28 and 29. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. What's the command in here, church? There's just one. John calls us little children again. After he says that, he says the command, abide in him. That's the command. Now, this word abide, this is the seventh time John uses that Greek word here in his letter. So let's talk more, a little bit more about that word abide. If you grew up in the church, you've seen it everywhere, right? It's on bracelets and coffee mugs and shirts. Youth ministries are called abide. Right? If you grew up in the church, you mean that. You've seen that. So it's a great word. It's rich in meaning. And John's going to unpack the definition for us. But before we do a quick dive here, I want you to begin to notice how John in our text is using the word he and him. And each time he's using that, he subtly shifts who he's talking about when he says he and him, hoping that you'll follow along. Let's look at a couple of them. Abide in him. Who's the him? Well, if you look up to the previous verse, you can see it's referring to his anointing, which is a clear reference that could only mean Jesus. Not God the Father, not the Holy Spirit, but he's referring to Jesus. And so he's saying abide in Jesus. That's part of the definition here. When we abide, we abide in Jesus so that... When he appears, this is still referring to Jesus, because Jesus is the one that appears again. When he appears, when he comes back, we may not shrink from him again, Jesus. Okay, so verse 29, the next one, says, If you know that he is righteous, you may know that everyone who practices righteousness is born 
of him. There's a switch there. If you know that he is righteous, still referring to Jesus, everyone who's been born is born of him. I think there's a switch there to God the Father. Because Jesus didn't have any kids, right? So here at the end of verse 29, there's the beginning of a swapping back and forth between referencing God the Father and Jesus the Son. And John's using them almost interchangeably, but of course with meaning. And so hold that thought. We'll circle back to that later and later verses. So as I mentioned, this is the seventh time we see this word abide. And last week, Pastor Tyler Thompson did a great job helping us see that this anointing is connected to this abiding, that you abide, you remain in this anointing of Christ. But the clearest passage on this abide thing and and what John is wanting you to get at comes from the words of Jesus himself in John 15. And last week, as I'm sitting there under, under Tyler's preaching, I'm going, don't go to John 15. Don't go to John 15, because I wanted to go there today, and he didn't. So, so he would have ruined everything. <laughs> so I want to read John 15. I want to read verses 1 through 11. It's a little bit of a longer section. So I just ask that you turn there or read along and do the work of staying engaged through it. Jesus is making a really amazing, intricate point. And I think what you're going to see if you read this critically, it's like 1 John is an expansion of John 15. You can see a lot of the same themes of hope and assurance and confidence and obedience all in Jesus' words in John 15. So let's read 1 through 11 now. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If we're looking for a definition of abide, it's here. It's long, it's 11 verses, but it's here. Look at some of these connections. Abiding in the love of God. Keeping God's commandments is how you abide in the love of God. Jesus is unpacking this fuller idea. Now, obviously, an entire sermon could be preached from just these verses, of course, but a couple of points to hit on before we go back to our text. Jesus says, picture God like a grape grower. 
And like a good grape grower, he wants the best grapes possible. Of course, Jesus says, I'm the vine. You all are the branches and the best fruit. In fact, the only fruit comes from the branches off this specific vine. And so like any good vine dresser, I don't know how much you know about vine dressing, but whatever you know, it's probably more than I know about it. God's going to remove the dead branches off the good vine, and the good branches will be pruned as well. They'll be cut back a little bit. Why? To produce more fruit. That's the point. Bearing fruit is the point of abiding. And the Lord reminded me of this a, a week ago, that in seasons that feel like pruning, painful seasons, if you're the branch being pruned, that sounds kind of painful being cut back. In seasons like that, hard seasons, for those branches connected to the true vine, there's purpose in the pruning. So for those of us in a season of pruning, remember that and keep abiding, remain in Christ, keep obeying his commandments, abide. And how does the fruit grow? By remaining attached to the vine. If you detach from the vine, no fruit comes, the branch dies. John wants you to have this whole image in mind in John 15 when we step into this word abide here. We should have this full image. Oh yeah, there's the vine dresser and the vine, the branches. Okay, got it. So what is this fruit, by the way? Why are Christians always talking about fruit? We love fruit. Christians love fruit. Why should I bear fruit in my life? Why should I care about bearing fruit? And what even is this fruit? Obviously, it's a metaphor, but first, look again at John 15, 8. The answer to why is there. John 15, 8, because it glorifies God. That's why we should want to bear fruit, because it glorifies God. And so for those who love God, we want to glorify him, so we seek to bear fruit. And you prove to be disciples of Jesus when you grow good fruit. That's another reason. So we abide in God's love by keeping his commandments. That's part of what abide means, keeping God's commandments. Now, as far as to what the fruit is, what is it that we're actually referring to? Spell it out for me. Well, Galatians 5, of course, gives you famously a a great list of the fruits of the Spirit. But John, back in our text, has a specific fruit in mind, which we read earlier. So let's read verse 28 again. Remember what he wrote. Little children, abide in him so that, here's what the fruit is, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Hopefully you're starting to see the echoes already between John 15 and 1 John. So what fruit does John have in mind when we abide? He says, so that when Jesus comes back again, we'll, we'll respond in confidence. That's the fruit. So when Jesus comes back again, and by the way, John wants you to hear, Jesus is coming back again, lest we forget. I love, again, what Tyler Thompson shared last week, that if back then in Scripture it always refers to the last hour, well then, today we must be in the last minutes then. When Jesus comes back, when he comes back, we may have confidence. Now that word, that word confidence can be translated a bunch of different ways. All the translations do it kind of different. I think it's helpful to understand what's being meant here by confidence when Jesus comes. Assurance. This is a main point of this letter here. Uh, boldness. I love this one. Openness. So think kind of Adam and Eve, right? 
when, when Jesus came, when God came, they shrunk away. They hid. They didn't respond in confidence. So if responding in confidence means responding with openness, not hiding, not shrinking away. So when I come home at the end of the day and I walk through the doors, my kids, if they've been really good that day, and, oh, we listened to mom so well. Oh, look, we cleaned up the house. Our room is clean, and we're actually helping mom get dinner ready. When I come home, they respond with, wow, dad's home. And they run up. They give me a hug. They respond in confidence, knowing that I'm going to receive them gladly and with joy. Now think about the other side of that. If I come home... And Helena, my wife, is in tears because they've been kind of crazy that day. The house is a mess. Okay, and I come home, I walk through the door. What's their reaction? Uh, They kind of shrink away, right? Uh Uh-oh. And not that I'm super harsh or anything like that, but there's that reaction that we have, right? When we know we're doing right and when we know we're doing wrong. It's, it's like they reenact the Adam and Eve story perfectly every time. It's amazing. I show up and they, they hide. Then they start blaming each other. It was, well, she told me to do it. And he, yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> this is why Dwight Schrute from The Office says famously, this is why I love whipping open doors to catch people in the act. That's part of what Dwight likes to do. <laughs> if your boss walks by your desk and you're dutifully filling out that TPS report they asked for, and they walk by, and they see you, and they go, oh, nice. And you say, yeah, it's working on what you asked me to do. Okay, you respond with confidence, as opposed to they walk by your desk, and for the fifth time, you're playing solitaire. It's like, okay, I'm going to shrink away a little bit, close that tab real quick. We get this, right? So think really for a moment. If Jesus shot down and did a superhero landing right here on the stage and you knew it was really him, what's your reaction? What's your reaction? There you go. Apart from surprise, what is your real reaction there? I mean, really. Do you run into his arms with abandon like a child? Or do you internally kind of go, ooh, I hope you didn't see what I did last week. I hope, hope we're cool. Think about that moment. That, that's what John's getting at here. When Jesus comes back, what is your reaction? So practically, we think about it. It's pretty clear the way that the world is going to respond when Jesus does come back. We have lots of scriptures in Isaiah and Revelation about what the reaction of the world will be, especially those who are not in Christ. But in this communication, it's everyone. This is how everyone's going to respond. One thing that's clear is if Jesus did come right now and land here bodily and stand before us, you wouldn't have a moment really to saddle up to him and just be like, hey, let me just explain real quick. Last week, what I was trying to do was we won't, we won't have that opportunity to explain in the moment. So when we look at how Scripture defines how we will react, we see it in Isaiah 2, 19 through 22. It'll be up on the screen as well. So this is speaking of the coming return of the Lord in judgment. It says, And the people shall enter the caves of the rock and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves in worship 
They'll scatter them to the moles and to the bats. They'll close that solitaire tab quickly. They'll enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliff from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And then I love this last verse. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? I love that verse. Just stop. Stop worrying about what people think and start worrying more about what Jesus thinks. What does your Lord and Savior think? What is your reaction when he comes? That's John's question for you. Because Jesus is coming back, really, someday. And we're kidding ourselves if we think he isn't or we live like he isn't. And this whole practicing righteousness thing This whole doing what Jesus says thing, obeying his commands, it really matters. And our actions will come to a head at some point. If we really are in the last minutes, well, then this stuff really matters. And we don't get to know when. Scripture is clear about that. We don't know when he's coming back, but it is clear that he is coming back. So that's the tension we live in. We don't know when, but we do know with certainty. And we know that for those who abide in Jesus, who practice his obedience to his commands, staying connected to that vine, those will respond with confidence and assurance, and they won't shrink away in shame. They'll know with certainty who Jesus is to them, and they're standing with him and are confident in that. Not because of their own righteousness, which John will get into more. This word confidence is found four times in 1 John. I think this is really interesting. Two of them are telling us about our confidence at Christ's second coming. One of them's here in our passage. And the two other times where that word confident is used, it's regarding our, our inner reality into God in prayer, that we should be confident to God in prayer. So think about the implication there. If John's using that word for prayer and Jesus' second coming, then we should have the same confidence in our prayers to God as we do as if we see him face to face. Pray like we're seeing Jesus face to face. There's so much there that we can't get into here. But this is, if you remember Romans, when we went through Romans, this is a Romans 8.1 kind of response, right? No condemnation, no shame, no hiding, just a child running up. He calls us little children over and over and over to remind us of that. We are like the child running into the arms of a loving father. That's who we are. So let's read in 1 John 3, verse 1. John continues this child father image. He says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. There's that assurance. So we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John says right at the beginning, that very first word, I love, I mean, that first verse is just beautiful, isn't it? See what kind of love the Father's given to us. 
that we should be called children of God. John says, see. That's the only other direct command to you and I this morning. See. And there's more interplay, if you saw, with John's use of him in this passage. Let's look at a couple of those. Verse 1, we are children of the Father. The world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Clearly referring to Jesus. Jesus is the one that the world had the opportunity to know, and some believed, and many didn't. And if the, wor- if the world didn't believe him, then they're not going to believe you who are in him. You would expect, though, that there's a, a reference to the Father, wouldn't you? See what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called children of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him, but it switches there from the Father to the Son. And John switches back as verse 2 begins. And the implication here with all this switching is that John understood on a deep level that Jesus and God are one. He's really clearly trying to do that. Jesus wasn't a good guy or a smart guy or a prophet only. He was God himself. The Father and Jesus are one. And I just love how he's doing that in the subtlety of the language and not just explicitly saying he wants you to... He wants you to dig in and see these things. As we dig in, did you catch the change in perspective between the end of chapter 2 and 3? Verse 29 is all you, second person. And then verse 1 switches to we, us, first person. That's important because John is putting himself right next to you and me before God. God's the father. We are the children, John says. We're all the children. And verse 2 is so interesting to me, the language in there to follow along. He says, we are God's children now. Okay, we get that. We're God's children now. So for those who are in Christ, who's saved, we're God's children now. And then he says, what we, what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay, so there's a future work that we don't see yet. And then he says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's lots there, and the hymn again in verses 2 and 3, referring to Jesus, we know that because of the connection to a return of Christ. Jesus is the one that's promised to return. So he says, we will be like Jesus. And so we have to ask the question, in what ways will we be like Jesus? Like God? That should be shocking to hear. We're going to be like God? So entire false religions are built incorrectly on the assumptions and misunderstandings of texts like these, and this text even. You might be able to read this verse and go, great, we'll be like God. So we imagine ourselves being like God in a number of ways that Scripture does not teach at all. So to answer that, in the ancient Near East culture, much like ours, it was believed that children get their character from their parents, their fathers. The thinking is not that you become exactly like your father, but assuming you even want that, but that you have a clear family resemblance, not just in how you look, but your character. Does that make sense? I think this is how John is thinking of this phrase, that we, as children of God, will become like him. There'll be a family resemblance there. So, To illustrate that, look at the story of Moses in Exodus 34. 
After meeting with God, being in his presence, if you remember this story, Moses came out from meeting with God and talking with him, and his face was glowing. That's, that's kind of amazing, right? Is that random? Like you meet with God and your face glows? No. God's glory is described as a bright light, so bright that no one can see God. And even speaking with God, Moses' face glowed like a glow-in-the-dark toy or something. So as that happened to Moses, did Moses then become God in any way? No. But in that way, he glowed like God. So he was like God in that way. Now, 1 John here is not teaching us that we will become gods in any way. Because we will never be omniscient like God, all-knowing. That's, that's a God thing, not us. We'll never be omnipresent, present everywhere like God. No. We'll never be omnipotent, all-powerful. No, these are God things, not us. So sorry if that bursts your bubble, but we're going to be like God, not in those ways, but in other ways. Let's talk about those. In what ways, then, will we be like God? Well, when we abide in Jesus, when we obey him, when we love him, when we remember him, we are practicing being a child of God, like Jesus is right? So if Jesus is a child of God, and when we practice abiding in him, we are called children of God, then we are like Jesus in that way. We become like God when we practice righteousness. And 1 John begins in this way, and and he acknowledges we're going to do it imperfectly. So when we fail, we have an advocate. You remember that from a few weeks ago. So we become like God when we practice righteousness, because Jesus is righteous. So we become like him in that way. We become like God when we respond to him in confidence and not shame. Like Jesus, when Jesus interacted with God, it was never out of shame, always confidence. So we're like God when we do that same thing. We're like God when we're known by God. In, in, uh, earlier in the Romans 8 passage, I got to preach about how the Spirit's work in us is making our hearts known to God. And Jesus is fully known by God, of course. So as we're known by God, we become like him. Colossians 3.4 tells us that we'll be like God in his glory because of Jesus. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We'll share the glory of God. This is called the beatific vision. The seeing of God that fills beholders with glory and gives us hope and purifies our life. That's how John ends the passage here with this idea of purity. And we make ourselves pure, he says, because of our connection to Jesus. And Jesus is the source of all purity. Now, if you're like me, when you hear this, make yourselves pure thing or make yourself righteous, you immediately start making a plan. Okay, I need to be pure. Okay, here's how I'm going to do it. First, I'll get up at 3 a.m., um, which is an hour after Frank, Pastor Frank gets up, but I'll, that's okay. I'll get up at 3 a.m., I'll do these things in this order, and then I will make myself pure, right? So pause. Before you take the reins, when it says be pure, be righteous, before you take the reins, pause for a second, consider. Is that your job? To make the plan, to execute that, to make yourself pure, Scripture would say yes and no. 
And John here in this passage is leaning towards resting in your identity more than executing perfectly your plan. So John's going to get into that next week. But before we get there, how to make yourself sinless, how to remove sin, John wants you to hear first to abide. Abide. Before you take the reins, abide. And we've tried that before, right? Trying to overcome our sin by sheer willpower. It didn't work last time, did it? It won't work again. So what do we do then? You say, well, I want to grow. I want to be pure. I want to be righteous. Okay, so first, God knows you want that. He sees that. But the way that you grow in this life, Christian, is by abiding and remembering that it's Jesus' righteousness that makes you righteous, not your own, right? You can't make yourself righteous. You can abide in Christ who is righteous, and as you abide, you become like God in that way. There are two commands. That's it in our passage today. Two direct commands. So for those that want a list of things to do, here's the list. It's short. Verse 28 says abide. Verse 1 says see. Abide in Christ and see the love of God. See it. Look for it. That's your to-do list. Remain on the vine. Obey God and observe his love. So I was hanging out with Brennan. He's one of our musicians. He plays electric and bass up here. I asked him when we were hanging out together how he wrestles with this idea in Scripture between taking actual steps towards purity and righteousness in our lives versus the Spirit's work, despite us, of sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. He said this, the way we practice righteousness in our lives is by abiding. Our responsibility is to abide in Jesus. If we want to practice purity, we practice abiding. That's how we practice purity. We abide. I asked if he was available to preach today instead, but he's uh, not available today. So, When we think about this idea of purity, too, let's remember how fortunate we are to live in the post-Christ reality of purity and how we become pure. If you know much about Old Testament purity laws, you know that they, it's an arduous process to become pure. But in Jesus, purity is given to those who hope in Christ. That's what verse 3 says. Those who hope in Christ will be pure as he's pure. So those demands may seem less specific, but the call on how we live our lives is just as intense. Jesus didn't come to save part of our lives, church, but all of it. All of life, right? There's this great uh, commentary in 1 John by Karen Joves. She says this, Just as Old Testament rituals set one apart for a special time of service to God or to enter into his presence, she says all of the Christian's life is to be set aside by a moral consecration in one's way of life. This is to be an imitation of the example of Jesus, whom Christians will be like, when he returns. We become pure like Jesus is pure by abiding. Now, certainly, she's referencing there a moral purity. And that's important. And in the Old Testament, a ritual purity made way for a moral purity. But Jesus offers the Christian both. And John's going to get into more specifics, as I said, 
next week on keeping yourselves from sin, but he wants you to know your first priorities, church. Before we go there, remember this. He wants you to know, abide and see. Live into the reality of your childness, your childhood before Christ. You can never abide too much, right? Think about that. You're, you're abiding, you're busy obeying God, and God says, that's enough abiding. I think you've done enough. <laughs> no. No matter where you are in your walk, you can answer the call to abide more deeply in Christ. You can't see God's work too much. If God is everywhere and all-powerful and all-knowing, then his work is everywhere. You can never see God's work and his love too much. Remember that Jesus says to all who are weary and heavy laden, what does he say? What's the answer there? Come to me, Jesus says. So practically, who do you go to when you're weary and heavy laden? Remember, church, your phone or your friend will never give you the kind of rest that your heart truly needs. Jesus offers that. You're weary, you're heavy laden, come to Jesus. Abide in him. Jesus on the cross has done the work of salvation for you. The work is finished, he said. He offers you now his open arms. Run to him like a child with abandon, with confidence. Run to him. Abide in him. Jesus says to all that are thirsty, if you're thirsty, come to me. True rest, living water, is only available in Jesus. Come to him. Abide in him. And this week, see, see around you his love and his work. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this image of the vine and the branches and the way that the Father works in the lives of believers. And God, for those in here who have never put their trust in you, who have never practiced abiding in you, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make it impossible for them not to act now, to come forward and and receive prayer now, to put their faith in you once and for all now. And Lord, as so many things in this passage have to do directly with people that are already Christians, our call is the same, to abide now, to see now to confess our sin and our need for you, God, now. So give us, Lord, the boldness to respond in the humility and the grace that we need to come before you and simply say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want to run to you because I'm, I'm anxious. I'm stressed. Things in my life aren't going the way that I wanted. This feels like a season of pruning, Lord, and it's painful and I don't know what to do. Lord, in those moments, meet us where we're at. Surround us, Lord, with your love. Help us to see with fresh eyes your love and the Spirit's working in us, in the world around us. Lord, open our eyes. We're so, we're so busy. We're so blind. We, we miss it. Lord, grab us by the shoulders and help us to see. Help us this week to see, Lord. In Jesus' name.